your original motivation almost doesn't matter as long as you have it. And, you know, I think in VC world, other people like they try to find these like super Puritan mission oriented founders that their life's work is this, et cetera, et cetera. And every successful founder I know when they started, they had like a f-ed up motivation, you know, like and mine was like, I wanted to get rich because like I want to pay my bills so I don't have to go to my, back to my mom. That was my thing. You know, I just wanted like financial independence so I could do whatever I wanted without having to get permission from my parents. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. Have you been to this office before? I have been once, maybe like two months ago. You did? Yeah, I think I came to see Mamoon. Okay. Well, dude, it's good to have and you. later I came for other reasons, but... Isn't it funny how we were just talking about LA and you growing up, your dream was to be in Silicon Valley. And I know. then you get to Silicon Valley and then all of a sudden you just can't wait to not be in Silicon Valley over time. Yep. Isn't that funny how life works that way? Not just necessarily where you live, but generally speaking... Yeah, I would say, you know, well, look, I'm very grateful to the place, you know, it's just like I used to sell like, hey, I'd never want to sell Brex except if I have to be here in San Francisco my whole life. You know, that's that would be the only reason I do it. Isn't it weird? Like, I bet when you were a kid and when I say kid, like in your teens, you probably thought, boy, if I had this, this type of company, right, if I could get out of Brazil and do this thing, then this And I bet that feeling just never really ends, does it? This feeling of the way that I describe it is a little bit of dissatisfaction. Maybe that's how I always feel. So I'm just projecting it on you, but kind of living in the gray area between your current state and your desired future state. I don't know. Your LA comment made me think of that. I used to think that way. And I would say that 2022 is when I saw change a little bit. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's a combination of COVID or, you know, or the macro or therapy, whatever it is that like, I kind of internalized the fact that, look, if I want to get to a desired outcome, I just need to do the inputs right every day. And so I just like focus on that so much because otherwise it's just so anxiety generating, right? Are we going to get out of this macro environment? What is going to happen? What's inflation? COVID was the same thing. Like what's going to happen to the world? Yeah. And there's this book, Atomic Habits, that's really good that talks about this. But like, hey, what are the habits that you need to have to make sure that if you do it every day, you know, you're going to get to the outcome that you want. And I just spend probably most of my energy now thinking about my day and thinking, okay, will I get to do the things that I want to do today that will lead me to the outcome of the future? On the therapy piece, do you find that therapy gives you something that a professional coach does not? Yeah, I think that like when I'm with a coach and we had great coaches, it's very much about the way that work impacts me. I think with therapy, you know, you go more into the personal stuff and then you kind of figure out that things are interwined more. So I did think it helped me in a different way. And I think with a coach, we spend a lot of time, at least with our coaches, talking about specific organizational challenges or how to do feedback or how I was feeling about this or that. Versus in therapy, you actually do go into, you know, your childhood stuff and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I do think though that the childhood stuff is deeply intertwined in the way that you build the company. Hundred percent. No. Yeah. Did it take you a while to figure that out? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Can you tell me about what Ask Me Out is? Yeah, I think I was 15 or 16. I had a big fight with my mom because I was trying to build companies and go to school in the US and she's a labor judge in Brazil. So if you can imagine, not super. Not she's super, a labor judge in Brazil? Yeah, she's a labor <laughs> judge. So if you can imagine, not super pro-entrepreneurship. She was more on the union side, let's put it like that. You know, at some point she got and had a conversation with me that was Enrique, like if you're adult enough to make your own decisions, you know, you need to go support yourself. So I got emancipated and I kind of moved out and started supporting myself and I was running out of money and because I had made some money in the past through some gaming stuff. And I saw this hackathon in Miami that was worth $50,000 and I was like, wow, if I can win this thing is more time supporting myself, right? So, okay, I'm going to bet a bunch on winning this hackathon. So I went to two friends and I had this friend of mine who was at MIT at the time and he had a crush on this girl that was his neighbor, but he was a super shy guy. So he didn't want her to know that he had a crush. Instead, she had a crush back, which she didn't. Um, <laughs> and so we had this idea, okay, let's build an app that you can like, like people that you know, right, from Facebook friends. And if they like you back, you both know. And we did that in that hackathon, as you can imagine, not super hard to build when Facebook APIs allow you to do this. We won the hackathon, so that was the story. And that was your first company, technically? Technically, that was the second trial of a company. Yeah, I had tried one before that failed. What was conversation like for you at the dinner table growing up in Brazil? I would say that conversation when I was growing up was very much about kind of like school and normal stuff. And I had like achievement a- stuff? No, just more like, like my mom was a labor judge, right? So she, as a judge, like a big part of she's like, analyzing people. She needs to tell like someone's lying, not lying, what he thinks. So I think like we talked a lot about what happened in school and like analyzing the situation, uh, which I think was actually really good for me in that respect. So that was a lot of it. And then just activities and, you know, it was pretty chill. My dad was there too, but my mom was the breadwinner. So she like told everyone what's up. You still stay close with your mom now? Yeah, I would say we had a falling down around that time. So we didn't talk much for a few years. And then I would say we started getting closer maybe two years ago and, you know, pretty close now. And was that falling out a function of you being frustrated that she couldn't understand this itch for entrepreneurship, for lack of a better word? This was the career path that you wanted that she didn't understand. Well, the lack of understanding was annoying, but then the like, I'm not going to pay any of your bills. You need to move out of the house and do your own thing. You know, that was a bit much in my view. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless you get a like traditional job type thing. Unless, no, no. If I wanted to, you know, just go to school and get right. a traditional job and do kind of like the traditional path, yeah. then it's fine. But if I wanted to go do this crazy stuff, then it needs to be my own dime. Yeah. And at what point did you feel like she, it, the framing of it wasn't crazy stuff anymore? Was it? When you made it to Stanford, you know, like at what point in her eyes you feel like, okay, maybe this is my path. I think when we sold my first company that like actual dollars came in. Yeah. And that was Pagarme? Yeah. Can you tell me about that company? Yeah. It was kind of like the stripe of Brazil. It's probably the easiest. How old were you when you started it? That was like maybe three months after asking me out. So this was like maybe 16 to 17. Okay. And that worked really well. I think it was like probably similar to why Stripe worked here. Kind of easy integrated APIs for businesses to accept payments. And then we did really well because 
But in Brazil, like there's all these marketplaces coming up kind of like here. But the thing is like the tax law there said that if you have a marketplace and the GMV of marketplaces are taxable. So if a marketplace <laughs> received the total, let's say it's Uber and the Uber received the money first from the transaction, they would have to pay taxes on top of it. So we had this technology in which we could split that transaction to pay, for example, if, we, if Uber were a customer, we had a competitor that was a customer, we would pay the driver some and then the platform some and then the platform never touched the money. They would only pay taxes in their own stream and no one else was doing that. So that actually grew a lot. And when you say grew a lot, can you contextualize that? We only raised $300,000 because, you know, that's what people were willing to give us at 16. And then we got to like a billion and a half in transaction volume, yeah. like in TPV, uh, like tens of millions in revenue. It was very profitable. So it was a good company. And who's we? Me and Pedro, my co-founder. The same co-founder is here. And who's Pedro? So Pedro is my co-founder. Um, he Across several companies. Across these two companies. Yeah. Across Pagarme and then now Brex. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly, exactly, exactly. And I would say that, you know, we've been working together since then. Now it's going to be like 12 years now. Yeah. And how'd you meet him? We met over Twitter. So basically, Pedro was very hacker famous worldwide, actually, because when he, he started coding when he was nine, when he was 12, he found the first jailbreak for the iPhone 3G in the world. And then that was all over the news because usually these things come out of China or Russia or something. And it was all over the news. And then he got very hacker famous. And then like I reached out to him on Twitter and we started fighting text editors, Vim versus Emacs. It got too complicated to fight over 140 characters. We went to Skype. On Skype, we became best friends and decided to start programming together. Man, that is a nerdy story. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> is it public? What you Did you sell Pagarme? Yeah. How big did the company get in terms of people? It was a big company with not as big as acquisition as it should. Yeah. I think it sold for like five times profit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which is, if it was these days, it would sell a lot more. Yeah, or a year ago, a little bit more than that. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more than that. But at the time, you know, like there's a lot of other reasons why that happened. But the company today is a big company. So like the company who bought it is this company called Stone. Yeah. You know, it's like when a big company, public company in the US, a big company, and their entire online arm is Pagarme, you know, and I think, I don't know if they break down the numbers, but you know, it's very big now in Brazil. And the company got to 110, 120 people. You're like 16, 17. Well, it took three years, right? So maybe I was like 20 by that time. Yeah. Is that awkward? Did you have deep imposter syndrome? No, man. I had an ego the size of like no a kidding. Manhattan skyscraper. You thought you were yeah. entitled to it. Yeah, 100%. No way. Yeah. Why so, is that? Well, I think like... That's different than normal, you know? Yeah, I think so. When I started my first company, I was like 14 or 15. And I was in the press a lot when that happened. And... Press is a weird thing. Uh, maybe in the US they're more used to it, but like, is like this massive validation to everyone around you that what you're doing is kind of serious. So I had like journalists calling me like the next Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, the genius prodigy of Brazil. And you when bought into the hype. When I was 15, and I totally believed them, you yeah. know? Like, I was so like, oh, yeah, that's what I am, you know? Like, yeah. and, like, and then I had a lot of ups and downs since then, but I would say that. At that point, I'm like, yeah, f yeah, I'm like, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And your co-founder, was it very clear when you decided that you were going to start a company together, the delineation of responsibilities for that company? The reason I ask is because, you know, you have a big ego at the time. He is this incredible, already renowned yeah. coder, right? So you're both already something at a nothing age. Yeah. I think that... 
at the time, even though I had a big ego, I knew very instinctively that the only way to be very successful is by having the smartest people around me. Mm -hmm. So I was actually deferential to him. Deference definitely spoke a lot higher than my ego. Yeah. And I actually like that with a lot of people that worked for us. I felt lucky that they were working for us. And when you say successful, what did that mean to you? The only way for me to be successful was to get the best people. What did that mean to you at that time? Was it financial? Yeah, I think at that time, like proving to my mom in the world that like yeah. that was a really a career path that was decent. Yeah. And then after we raise money is like getting a good outcome for the company, right? And, you know, having profits and all that. And we'll get into Brex and the, whatever. It's a huge company now, huge in the terms of like market cap and whatever. Has that definition of success, having gone through what most would define as successful until now changed? Meaning, I'll give you a pretty tangible example. And this is maybe too close to home, no pun intended, but Parker at Rippling talks about how his original motivation for starting Rippling was really a revenge tour against a bunch of people that he thought screwed him over. Yeah, that was the chip on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And some other VCs. And he was very clear about that. And he says now, listen, now I'm way away from that. Like I'm not trying to prove anyone right or wrong in the same way that I was then. That's all I cared about. So I wonder how much have you disassociated from the original thing? Oh yeah, dude, honestly, like if we're going to be very blunt, and I say this to a bunch of people, is like your original motivation almost doesn't matter as long as you have it. And, you know, I think in VC world, other people are like, they try to find these like super Puritan, mission-oriented founders that their life's work is this, et cetera, et cetera. And every successful founder I know, when they started, they had like a f***ed up motivation. And mine was like, I wanted to get rich because like I want to pay my bills so I don't have to go to my, back to my mom. That was my thing, you know? I just wanted like financial independence. So I could do whatever I wanted without having to get permission from my parents. Yeah, I actually find that it's often motivated by something unhealthy, like insecurity is a big one yeah, that, totally. that I see. It's a pretty consistent theme of like a deep insecurity of trying to prove others or yourself that you can be something. It's not necessarily that you were born in this world with a mission in mind that you're now going to go solve. I actually think that's a little over glamorized. That happens but I think it's the exception, not the rule. I 100% agree. And COVID for me was actually like a super interesting year because 2019 is a fucking awesome year for Brax. You know, we started out 2019. We had just raised our billion dollar round. We grew revenue from 10 to 100 million in one year. Everything was amazing. We hired like a ton of people. Everything was going great. And then 2020 came. And then like COVID hit and we were definitely not COVID beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. People were spending less on their credit cards during COVID, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, right? TNE went to zero, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of the motivation that I had at the time was like of growth and like wanting to grow even more. And the financial kind of had to be replaced of something because that was not happening and I needed to be happy. So I need to came, come to some place. And I was traveling a lot. Like, I think I, I flew 600 hours in 2019 because we had four offices. I was flying between them. I was seeing customers. I was seeing investors. I was doing everything. I flew 600 hours. And 2020, like, I flew a little bit, maybe like 100 hours because I was moving around a bit, but like a lot less. And I was in these places for like months in a row, right? I used to go out a lot because I was 23. And that's what 23-year-olds go. I didn't go out for like two years, right? So, and then that just gave me a lot of time to kind of reflect. And I would say over that period, like after COVID is when really like I kind of like 
got out of the financial success motivation and got into the mission orientation motivation. But it took a while, you know. When you sold Pagarme, what did you do? Did you come to the States? Yeah, I went to Stanford. You went to Stanford, you and your co-founder. Yeah, both together? of us got in. Together, both of us got in. Both and was like this in. the dream? Was this the Mecca, come to Stanford? That was the Mecca. This was it? That was it. Part of your motivation was like, all right, if we build this company, maybe Stanford will let us in. Yeah, kind of, well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The first company I started, the first, first one when I was 14, 15, it was the study in the US one, came from, hey, you know, my grades are not that great, so I kind of need something else for my application. Maybe starting a company would be a good idea. That was literally the original yeah. thing, I thought. Yeah, so funny. And what's even more ironic is you show up to Stanford, which is the goal, and then you dropped out. Like, how long did it take you before you dropped out? It was six months. Six months? Yeah. You spend your whole life waiting to get to Stanford, and then six months, <laughs> six months later. You yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, all in, man, I don't like school. You know, like, I never liked school. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, like, I didn't like school Because it feels up. too theoretical? I actually like learning. I, I found this out like recently, but I, I have pretty strong ADHD and I never knew because like I coded since I was 12. I was like, how the f*** can I code and have ADHD, right? So yeah. like just sitting in classroom for like two hours yeah. listening, I could not for the life of me pay attention. And then like having to then read the books of stuff I was like not interested in, I couldn't do that for the life of me. So it was just so painful to go through school, even though I like the stuff that I was interested in, I really liked and I enjoyed, but then there's all this other stuff you have to do for school, right? Like there's yeah. nothing to do with what you're interested in. Yeah. I say that I'm an outside cat, not an inside cat. Uh, it's hard for me to just sit inside. One of the things, uh, you know, Naval, you know who Naval yeah, is? Yeah. yeah. He, um, one of the things that was so weirdly liberating that I'd never heard of until he said it was the pressure of finishing a book. I don't know if this has anything to do with my ADD or whatever it is. I've never obviously been prescribed for it, but I definitely have a hard time sitting there doing anything for long periods of time. And when he said, hey, you don't have to finish a book you don't like. Like you can just put it down. I realized that it's very selective. If I'm into something, I can sit there forever. Probably not too dissimilar from coding. But if it's something that you even acutely don't understand why you're doing it, school being a good example, there is not a chance. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And look, what then happened, and I don't think I ever shared this in a podcast, but I'll share it here because you're good at interviewing. But <laughs> after a while, I, I was diagnosed and I got medicated and I took Adderall for like six months. And dude, like for the first while, it felt like a superpower. I had barely read any books in my life. I read 17 books in four months, like finished book to cover, 17. And I felt it was this like massive superpower, you know, like, oh my God, how could I survive without this? But then what I realized is that a lot of the superpowers that had gotten me so far here was this fact that not spending time on things that I didn't want to made me focus on only the most important things. So even though that like I got some new superpowers, I kind of lost my original superpowers. For example, if I was connecting and talking to someone or selling someone when I was on Adderall, my head was like thinking about five different things I had to do that same day because I wanted to do work. When I was me, I was like fully present and thinking about that conversation yeah. and like getting that. So I stopped and I kind of like the conclusion that I got is, you know, a lot of what got me to where I am today is because of my deficiencies and not, you know, in spite of them, I guess. Yeah, that's an interesting framing, meaning one interpretation of that could be, let's use impatience as one derivative of what we're talking about. Like, yeah, yeah it, I guess impatience can be a very negative thing, but impatience can also be 
positive applied to the right things. Exactly. 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 And the thing about being a CEO is that, you know, and this is people, sometimes people ask me, oh, what's the best advice I ever got from someone? And I was lucky, like I got introduced to Evan Spiegel in 2016 from Snap. And, you know, he gave me probably one of the best advice I ever got, which is the cool thing about being CEO is the best CEOs are extremely authentic to themselves. You can build the entire company, the entire organization around you. If you try to emulate being Elon Musk and you're not like that, you're just going to fail. So the only way to you succeed is to be 120% version of you and kind of build around it. So I think that's kind of has to do with it, right? Like if I know that I'm impatient, I know the settings in which I'm useful, but I also know the settings in which I'm not helpful. So I don't participate in those. And I focus on participating on the settings in which I'm useful, right? So I think as CEOs, you actually do have the power to build a company in a way that fits you really well and like leverages your superpowers and you hire people to compliment you on the things that you don't have. And I would say the advantage that I have is Pedro is the complete opposite of ADD. He can like redo whatever it needs for as long as it needs for like 14 hours in a row, no matter what it is. And he's super smart. So we complement each other really well in that respect. You know what my hunch is? I think that people aren't, let's use CEOs as an example, aren't super, super authentic. Because if you are, and all of a sudden people start judging you, people don't like you, they're actually, it's you, all of you, meaning you don't have any coat of armor. If you try and be Elon Musk and they don't like your leadership style, you always in the back of your mind are like, well, I can just do a different leadership style. And there's still me. They're not actually attacking me. They're attacking the leader version of me. It's just actually, I think, somewhat of a defense mechanism. That's what I think. Like, yeah. I think there's a separation of your identity as a person and then as a worker or as a leader. And I think that separation of space gives people a little bit of a protective shield. But I actually think it inhibits them from being the best version of what they can be. I think so too. And I think there's like a, another piece, which is what I always thought is like, you know, and now I've been public about this, the, the fact that I didn't enjoy reading books because like it's such a pattern for successful CEOs to read a lot, right? Like there's literally ads saying that. And so I always thought it's like, I can't tell this to anyone because who's going to want to work for a guy like this? Who's going to want to invest in a guy like this? You know, because as a CEO, you're proving yourself all the time. You're selling recruits, you're selling the entire company, you're selling investors, you're selling customers. And, you know, especially like employees and investors, they're betting on you. So you feel like you need to be a version of you that they would buy. And how can I be a version that doesn't read? You know, like that sounds terrible. And so I think that's the other thing is like you feel you need to fit to the mold of Silicon Valley. And if we're going to be real, Silicon Valley does have a mold, you know, like it's not that this is like completely inaccurate, you know, and I think Pedro and I, we benefited a lot from it in the sense of like, yeah, we are two like Stanford dropouts that know how to code that are 20 and 21. Where people took a shot on you and threw a lot of money your way. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't think of anything more stereotypical than Silicon Valley than that, right? Like, yeah. So I definitely acknowledge that that exists yeah. and, you know, it's a thing and we definitely got leverage of it. But I also think that people who are not like that, they feel they need to somehow mold into that, you know, which it, it's a thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Can you talk about applying to a firm? Were you at Stanford? Yeah. So the story was... Um, a firm is Max Lefshin's fintech company. Yes, yeah, yes, okay. yes, yes. So we knew we were going to start a company in Silicon Valley, right? Like that was already a thing. And everyone says, oh, recruiting Silicon Valley is impossible. We're like, okay, so like... If recruiting Silicon Valley is impossible, we should try to go through a few recruiting processes to then learn how they do it. And then when we start our own company, we can copy it. So that was the theory. So we went to the Stanford Recruiting Career Fair. 
talked to like 20 companies. 18 of those rejected us because we were freshmen. They said, we don't hire freshmen. And then the only two that said yes, I don't even remember what the other one was. I think it was WhatsApp and Affirm. <laughs> I think those are the only two that said yes. So as we started talking to the recruiter, we went through the process. And in the end, we're like, oh, okay, like we kind of want to start our own company, you know, et cetera. And then, but we want to meet Max. And they're like, okay. So they kind of like let us meet, meet Max. And then he's like, oh, so you guys don't want to work here? He's like, no, we want to start our own company. Okay, well, whenever you guys do, come chat with me. And uh, maybe a few months later, we had the idea for Brex. We went to chat with him. And he seated you. Yeah. You Trojan horse your way in. Yeah. It's pretty good. And you started Brex at what, 22? This was five years ago? 2017. Yeah, I think uh, 21 at the time. Both of you. Pedro was 20. 20. Yeah. So this company, for those listening that don't know, it's almost weird, I got to be honest, talking about using valuations as a framing mechanism for companies today. I got to be like, a, like you got to pick something, right? You got to pick something. <laughs> so I'll, I will use the valuation, which was uh, around 12 billion at the last round. Well, you've kind of had the who's who of investors. We did the series C, two point something billion, 2.2, 2.4, whatever, um, came out of Y Combinator. Is where you are now weird? In what sense where I am as- Over the last three years- do you ask yourself what the f just happened in this business? You were building one of the hottest tech companies, riding the wave of these insane, the valuations and the money flowing in directly tailwinded your business, right? Yeah, 100%. Because your corporate credit cards for startups. 100%. So the more money startups raise, the more they'd spend on their cards originally, yeah. right? And this was the craziest years we've ever seen. And you were the direct beneficiary of that. And the business as a function of that was also the beneficiary of that. It went insane. And then halfway through that, COVID hits. And then a year after COVID's gone, the business is like ripping even harder than it was before. And then now, you know, you just do layoffs. Everybody, including you, grew too quickly. We thought this was going to be a forever tailwind, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't. Valuations have completely changed. Public markets, like Snowflake's trading at like 12x revenue, best case, you know, like the world changed like fast, many times over in several years. I just wonder, I just want your reflection on that. That's my really long-winded question. So look, I think Brex, we did a lot of stuff right until 2019. When you went from 10 to 100? Yeah. And then we f***ed up a bunch of stuff from 19 till mid 21. And I think we're doing a lot of stuff right from mid 21 till 22. And I think that a lot of the success, the like so strong product market fit that we had in our first product made so that even if we were f***ing up a bunch of other stuff, it still worked. And I think that's hard to see from the outside. So like sometimes I get VCs that give advice about to founders about Brex. And they're like, oh, look at what Brex did. That was right. And it's like, no, no, that's the part we f***ed up. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the other thing that was right. But that one, don't copy that part, you know. And I think that, look, we definitely got a lot of benefit from it. And I would say like the best part is like the talent. You get to hire amazing people, right? You have a great brand. You have a lot of money to pay for these people. So the talent allows you to build amazing things. But also like I think what happened to us a little bit was 
we had such a success in our first product that we thought that everything else we ever did was going to work. So we did too many things. And we just started too many initiatives, hired too many people to do too many things. And honestly, look, we did the layoffs obviously twice now, one in COVID, one there. And obviously, like, I wish we hadn't hired that many people. But more than, like, how many people we hired, it was, like, how many different priorities we had. Because the reason we hired that many people was... To support the initiatives that you were taking Yeah, it was, like, just too many things at the same time. You know, like, it was just, like, too many new products, too many new segments. Like, trying to, like, go everything in parallel instead of, like, more sequentially. And I think that now... On the other hand, even though it seems that things are harder because, you know, the markets, the valuation, et cetera, look, we raised a billion dollars last year. We still have most of that on our balance sheet. And now all those, you know, not all of them, we laid off 11%, but like a lot of the people that we hired are now hyper-focused and building few initiatives that matter hard and matter a lot. We've never been more focused as a company. Everyone is now focused on the customer because, you know, you can't focus on the stock price because who the hell knows what's going to go with that, right? So everyone is focused on building and the customer. Like we're not hiring that much. So people are not spending their whole days doing interviews. So we've never produced so much as a company as we're producing now. And that feels amazing. In some ways, I bet it's a little bit of a burden off your shoulders getting back to this simplicity. I remember you were credit cards for startups. That was the pitch. Yep. That's it. That That's was on it. every billboard in every freaking exactly. corner of San Francisco. Exactly. And I bet there was some version of clarity that gave you superpowers. You're spot on. Exactly that. And if you listen to a lot of advice, they would say, focus on what you can focus on, nail your core, then steadily over time, continue to build out. Yeah. And... You know, maybe that didn't apply for this business or maybe it did, but it just happened too fast. VCs do tell this to entrepreneurs, but they don't believe it. If you do raise money at really high prices, you have to grow from somewhere, you know? And if your core is not going to provide that in time, because IRR is, there's a time component to it. Yep. You need to branch out. So I think that was also like part of it in the sense of like, Thank God that our core business is really good. So even if we were, you know, these other initiatives weren't working super well, the core one was still growing a lot more than we expected. That product market fit was so pure yeah. that it would just mask all these other things. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It would obfuscate what's actually happening in the business. Yeah. In some way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Was Scale your first customer? Yeah. So talk to the CEO, Alex, and he was reflecting back on the time when you were earning their business. And he was saying how you would just show up, not tell him, go to their office and just talk to the office manager. Yep. And I go back to this beauty of simplicity. That's what you were doing. You just show up and talk to the office manager. That was your customer. Yep. And you just listen to them and learn, you know, and you had one value prop, you had one customer and you just go there. You just show up to their office. Totally, totally, totally. And look, my, honestly, my job today it looks more similar to that than it did last year. You know, we launched Empower, which is our new spin management product. DoorDash was our first customer. Then we announced Coinbase. And we have a bunch of, you know, that these enterprises are a little bit uh, more annoying of letting us announce them. But we have a bunch like that that are signed up and using now. And I think that the product that we built is amazing. It's really, really transformational to the industry. But I think our go-to-market is, is not great yet. We're building it and we want to scale it, but it's not where it was. 
So in September, I decided that I was going to be a sales rep and I did 70 sales calls, like literally seven zero in one in September. month in September to figure out what is the best pitch that positions Rex the best way that customers relate the most that then we can go and like translate it down to all of our salespeople. And I had an amazing month. Like I had so much fun doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think like after that, Pedro, my co-founder did a similar thing with implementation. He's like, look, our product's great, but people are implementing in like some weird ways. Let me go and find like, what's the best way to implement. So he did like, I think 30 implementations by himself to, to figure that out. And I think that that level of going to the ground and really understanding the customer is both fun, but it also like, that's how you get really good, right? Because if you have the right foundations, executives are really good at building the machineries. If you have the right ideas, your chief product officer, your CRO, your CFO, they can all go and scale it out and make it really good. But going to the ground and coming up to the right ideas, that's what founders are very uniquely positioned to do. And I think when the business goes the way that yours did, it becomes easy to get away from the ground. Yeah, because you're just managing all the time. You're mm-hmm. just like dealing with stuff, you know? Like I actually also argue that I think that's a lot of reason why founders kind of get fried because they don't like the managing necessarily as much as they like going to the ground, understanding what's happening, and coming up with solutions based on what the market is telling them. Like I think that's what a founder does. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And I think the thing that Pedro and I are very different here, but like, Pedro really loves systems building. So he really geeks out on the incentive structures and the OKRs and like how to create the right incentives and the clarity and the all hands. He loves internal comms. Like he's never met a founder that's more obsessive internal comms than Pedro. That's why he's like the internal CEO. I love meeting with customers. I love sales. I love talking to customers all the time. I love figuring out what's wrong and how we're going to build to be different, right? Like I love also, you know, coming up, what's kind of the investor pitch? What's the sales pitch? What's the press pitch? Like all these things I really enjoy. And I just do that a lot more, right? So I think like it's a little bit founder to founder what you kind of like doing, but, and both are important. You just need to, again, know what you're authentically and what you're good at. Mm -hmm. I give a talk to our portfolio and it's the quality of seven, seven qualities of the seven companies that I think really highly of that each do one thing incredibly well. And then seven qualities and characteristics of individuals at startups that I think are basically lowest common denominator. And one of the companies that I highlight is Brex and the quality that I really admire in Brex that I've been looking at pretty much since the early days is that there is no recruiting fee internally. And the quality that I'm distilling down is the way that you recruit talent. Meaning what most companies do is if I go and work for Brex and I call my buddy and my buddy comes and works for us, I'd get a $10,000 referral fee. You don't do that. And I think it's a very simple message that you're sending to the organization that's in the DNA from the company, in the company from the beginning, right? That says in your base salary, you are paid to recruit. We all recruit all the time. It is a part of your job and we're not going to reward you because it's a part of your job. Like this is part of the expectation. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think like that's part of it. And then the other part, just being super pragmatic about it is like, look, that money is going to come out of somewhere. I rather just pay that to the people, you know, if you just get everything we're going to pay on recruiting fees and you just pay to get the best people. So we always been like aggressive in comp. 
Like our view on comp is, especially like leadership hiring is like, hey, if you're good, you're worth every dollar. If you're bad, we just need to get rid of you fast, you know, and then you'll be out of here. It's not a 20% difference in comp that's going to make or break this company, but you being really good at your job at this growth, it actually going to make or break the company in a lot of leadership roles. So we've always been like, hey, let's hire the best people and that, let's go from there. And if you do that and you're actually paying people really well, there's not a lot of money left for this kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> in general, like benefits and things like that, like perks, we put most of that money back into people's comp. And you structure comp in an interesting way. Do you still do that today? Yeah, yeah till this day. Uh, you can choose how much cash, how much equity you want. And Shopify launched something the other day. I was like, oh, I, I know where this came from. <laughs> we, you get a TCV. So let's say your TCV is, let's say, $200,000, to make the math easy. You can pick how much cash, how much equity you want. The thing that we realized is, one, you know, there's this kind of like myth in Silicon Valley that like, hey, if you're really hardcore, you take all equity. You don't take any cash. And if you want more cash, it means you're a mercenary, right? I think that's like the general kind of like myth in Silicon Valley. And we didn't really think that seemed to be true because when we actually talked to the people who like took more cash, you're like, dude, I have a mortgage. What do you want me to do? You know, I bought this house. Like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have bought it, but I did, you know, like <laughs> you want me to sell my house? And we realized that there's like a lot more to how people pe- picks cash comp. There's just like whatever their existing personal expenses already are. And companies miss out on a lot of people because they don't want to pay 30K more in cash for that role because in that person just can't because they have kids in school or they have a nanny or they have a mortgage or whatever it is. So anyway, so we had that hunch and we did it. Now, five years in, we looked at the data and we were like, okay, so is there any correlation between people who pick more cash and more equity? What we found is that there is some correlation with performance on the edges So people who pick like 90% cash, which is the maximum, perform worse. People who pick the minimum equity perform better. But in the vast majority in the middle, there's absolutely no correlation, neither with retention nor with performance. And the people that chose 90% equity, are they the best? Not all of them are the best, but it's positively correlated from being really good. And I'm curious, in an absolute... It's more correlated with age, usually younger people. (laughs) Right, that makes sense. I'm curious, from an absolute perspective, did more people pick more cash or more equity? The average skews, but I think historically it's been 65-35, the average. Towards equity? Towards cash. Towards cash? Yeah. If you were doing it all over again, would you structure it that way again? Yes. If you were doing all of this all over again, what would you restructure? In comp or? No, no, just like going through the ride. Do less things. That's the key lesson. Yeah, that you I took. think Frank Slootman has this, just like do things sequentially, you know, just to sequence it instead of paralyze it. I think that's the main lesson. It's not like you don't hire that many people. You can hire people as long as you feel you can do the same thing with them. You know, like they're actually working on the one thing that's your priority. Yeah. Your first two hires were first two-ish, were a CFO and a GC, right? Yeah. And the CFO that you hired was no joke. No joke. He was like one of the rising stars at SoFi, right? Yeah, he's chief revenue officer there. He's the chief revenue officer of a much bigger company than you at the time. Well, we were pre-everything, so yeah. Right, right. Your kids, how did that go down? I'm super curious. Because a lot of people, a lot of founders ask me, how did these guys recruit these people this early? A couple of things. So one is we met him through a lawyer, funny enough. 
that introduced us. And, you know, we started talking about it and he was young. So he was like 29, even though he was like a rising star, but he was still like 29. And, you know, he was interested in doing something different, something earlier, higher upside, but didn't know exactly what. He was thinking about starting a company. I think the first thing when I tell founders is like, we actually gave him a lot of the company. I won't say here how much because, you know, his privacy, but like any founder, when I tell them, they're like, what the f***? You gave that to that guy? And they're like, yeah, man. Like, honestly, wouldn't be here without him. So (laughs) I'm super happy we did. Because look, the risk for an executive, it's like 10 times higher for them than it is for you. If they don't work, and let's say it's a year, yeah, maybe you lost 25% of that equity. But if they work, they're worth a lot. But if you fire them within a year, right, they've lost their job that they were before and their high position and they have no job. They're like screwed, you know? Like there's 10 times more risk for them than there is for you. So if you think someone is amazing, again, I'm really big on this. It's like, just do whatever it takes to, especially in the early stages, like to get them. And if they're bad, get rid of them fast. But if they're really good, you know, just do whatever you can. So I think that was like one thing that like when I tell most founders, they're like surprised. The other thing is, you know, we were always like super generous with titles. And I think that's like probably counterintuitive to what most people advise. Again, it came from our perspective, like we just need to get the best people, whatever, what, whatever, no, no matter what. Right. And there's this myth in Silicon Valley. Oh, if you care about titles, you suck. You know, like that's the myth. Again, we measure this again at Brax. Like there's just no correlation of anything. Like it's just like a thing. Um, and some people care about titles. Yeah, they do. Whatever. You know, so we just gave the f-ing title. Like, I don't care. They're free. You know, we paid them and we gave the title. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is in Silicon Valley, brands do matter. You know, like people have very little information in your startup. So like who backed you does matter. And we had great backers, right? Like we had Peter Thiel, we had Max Levchin, we have Ribbit, we had YC, we had like all these great people that understood about payments and were saying they were good. We had sold the company before. So I think we did a good job also kind of like leveraging other people's reputation to try to like build our own a little bit, which is what every founder kind of needs to do. A combination of that and just alignment of values, right timing for him. It wasn't that like he didn't want to do anything, right. you know, in a bit of luck, in luck. So, How long did it take you to build the conviction that this was the person that you were willing to give up? I'm not going to say co-founder equity, but closer to co-founder equity than it was probably like early employee equity. Yeah, probably took like three, four months. For you both to build the conviction. Yeah. And was there anything that you were looking for that was uncompromising? Yeah, someone who both knew what we needed to do from a high level, like good leader, good manager, good knowledge of the space, just knew what to do. But also he was like building models on Excel himself before we even started, right? So like we recruit for this in execs till this day at Brex, but you know, it's someone who can operate at all levels. I think that's what we call it. They can go all the way from a strategy to doing the actual work. I call it dolphining, 10,000 and 1,000 feet. Yeah, exactly. like the rarest people can do that. Exactly. When I see them, like I tell our teams, like run as fast as you can at that person. It's just so hard to find. They're so hard to find. Very hard. And they are the rarest gift to startups. The best. We've kind of intuitively knew that and we saw that because even when we were interviewing him, he was like doing models, but also like not only that, he was very creative, like because we were doing a kind of like novel credit structure, he was like coming up with our credit algorithm before he joined, you know? So he's like very creative at the same time. 
I guess the layoffs happened and then you pivoted the business. That's partially why the layoffs happened. Is that fair? We pivoted the business and then the layoffs happened. Okay, okay. Pivoted the business. And the pivot of the business, this is a $12 billion company pivoting. That is not typical. Nope. And I will say, you're getting a lot of shit for it. I think it's incredibly brave. That is a very, we'll see how it plays out, but long-term orientation towards building a business. Most people just don't pivot at this point. They just don't. Why'd you do it? And can you talk about like the structure of what in yeah, the business yeah. happened? In yeah, the, like, yeah as for sure. Pivot? So basically we had our core product, corporate car for startups, right? And then we launched banking. It's mostly for startups as well, kind of like banking for startups. So both of those were doing really well. And that's honestly till today what pays the bills. And then we try to expand from there. We had a couple options to expand, right? Like we could expand to corporate cards for startups. Now we're corporate card for e-commerce. We try to do that. Then we could do a like, okay, like startups are small businesses. Let's just do more small businesses. So we did that. And then we're like, okay, kind of like large businesses, you know, what do we do? Large businesses is that. And what happened was, even though we thought we were doing three of the same thing, small businesses took such a scale that it became the entire business because we went from onboarding, let's say, I don't know, like 700, 800 customers a month, which for startups is like a lot, to like 10,000 customers a month. And what happens when that happens is everything breaks, right? All the support breaks, all the scale, you just need to rebuild everything for that scale. So then even though we thought we were trying three different things at the same time, we actually only did one of them because it was breaking, right? Like it was growing so fast and it kind of took priority. And then what happened was when it got to maybe like August 21, we looked at it and said, okay, we can't do all these things at the same time. We need to pick. And then Pedro and I both went to the ground to figure out. And when we got to the ground, we figured out two things. One, the small businesses that we were serving, they liked what we were doing, but what they really wanted was capital. Like what they really, really wanted was like lending. And when we went to the core startups that we were serving, they were like, guys, it's not just you in the market anymore. Now there's like five different people trying to do what you're doing. And if you don't build all this stuff that I need as I grow, I'm going to leave. And we found that out when we went to the ground. And we're like, okay, what do we do now? Because we raised a ton of money saying we're going to do this thing for small businesses. And there's like 60,000 of them here already. But our best customers that are saying that if we don't build stuff for them, they'll leave. And there's five different new competitors. So we needed to make the hard decision. And the hard decision was let's focus on our core customers. So we basically decided, okay, like two things we need to do. One, we need to exit the segment because it just takes so much of our resources and effort and mind share and et cetera. And we need to pivot everything to serve our core customers as they grow. And there were two things that mattered for our core customers. One is as they grew, they didn't need just cards anymore. They needed a way to control that spend. So spend management. And number two is they were going global. So they needed everything to work in multiple countries. And those, both of those were massive projects. So we did the hard call and we said, you know what? We're going to shut down these customers and it's going to be painful, but it is what we need to do in order to serve 
our core customers really well as they grow and focus on that part of the business. And then what we realized when we did that is that startups, when they're early, they're actually kind of unique because there's not a lot of small businesses that have $2 million in the bank account lying around, right? Which makes for the underwriting model to be very unique. But when they grow, they're actually pretty similar to other large companies. They have finance departments, they have procurement, they have controllerships, they have all these things. So whatever we build for startups that grow could actually be applied to the entire mid-market and enterprise industry. So we decided to focus there on the core startups that we always served, plus the kind of like mid-market and enterprise industry. But then the next challenge was, okay, so we're going to build this like spend management and global thing. What's different about it? Concurs is there, Expensify is there, you know, like, and we had some competitors doing stuff. So how is what we're doing different? And we went again to the ground because our initial intuition is like, hey, there's some competitors that are doing some stuff. Maybe we should just copy that. Right. And it was like, oh, let's go talk to customers. And so we went down and when we talked to customers, this is what they told us, which is really interesting, is we talked to like finance people and CFOs, etc. And we asked them, hey, what's your problem? Like use Concur, like what's your problem? Well, our problem is like we implemented this Concur thing and people just don't do what they're supposed to do. I'm like, what do you mean? Like we have the app for them to upload the receipts and we have the policies and we send them over email, we send them over Slack but they just don't do what they need to do. And we're like, okay, that sounds like a pain point. And so we, we designed Empowered to be a, how can we get people to actually do what they need to do? And turns out, very intuitively, employees do it if it's easy. If you make it easy for people to comply, they comply. Employees are not trying to like not comply because they're against the company. They're trying to rob the company. They're trying to comply it's just hard. And if they don't understand if that's why that's important, right? That's like really hard. So we did things, for example, one of the main initiatives, like automate receipts. Let's make sure you swipe your card. You don't ever need a receipt again. We realized that managers never looked expenses. They just clicked a button and approve everything. We're like, okay, what if we only showed you things that are out of policy? So you have three things to review instead of 50 things to review, right? And a lot of things like that to get them to comply with the policies that these finance people were building. And that resonated a lot with customers, you know, because like as we started implementing it, we started seeing the like compliance rates and all of that go through the roof. And these finance people went from being the annoying receipt chasers that are asking everyone, what is this? To like, okay, it's just the process that flows and, you know, they reach their goals and they're kind of more the superheroes. We built Empower and it's been amazing, but it just changed the business a lot because it's very much more similar to enterprise software than fintech now. But, you know, it was hard because like it was a year until the product was ready and we were selling it and getting traction. It was just a year of pain. (laughs) Now that it's, in your words, more of an enterprise software company than a fintech company, does that fire you up, the challenge? It's kind of mixed mix. It's both because in the end- Or is it daunting? I like the challenge. I would say like it's its own complexities. Selling credit cards is so easy. You know, like you just call people up and say, hey, I can give you a card of higher limits, no personal guarantee, great rewards. Most time, like, yeah, they started today. Now there's like all these like complex go to market issues, you know, and implementation and contracting and customization and like all the stuff in enterprise software, which changed the business a lot, but I'm learning a lot. So I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And did you and Pedro have to do anything as founders to be like, all right, we're a $12 billion company in air quotes? And we're going to rebuild this business. Like, did you almost have to like, I don't know, go on a yoga retreat or something? Like just kind of re the fuel 
to put back in the tank to get going again? Because obviously you have to rebuild the whole organization from no, the ground dude, up. Honestly, the urgency of it kind of like was the feel. Cause like, we're like, okay, like we have thousand people here, you know, and like, we need to be building the right stuff. We didn't even have time to think about it. I think maybe over the summer a little bit, we did that, but like, we just went so fast into like, okay, we need to make a decision. This decision we make, okay, what's going to be the product? What's the pain point? How do we build it? How do we align? What's the talent that we need? You know, who we need to hire? Who do we need to fire? Like, it was just like, because we had so little time to do it. Right. Cause Again, we had just raised money. We actually raised after this, but like we had just raised money at $12 billion and, you know, we had a bunch of growth goals and we just needed to figure it out, right? Like we just needed to do what we needed to do. And there was not a lot of time for reflection. But what happened, as I said, is we just went to the ground very closely. We went to talk to customers. Like we were talking to customers many times a day for the first few months. Yeah. Last one, you joined the Expedia board. And in the post when you announced it, you said, I promised myself I wouldn't join another board. Yeah. Why'd you do it? Also, cool board to be on. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah I think besides cool. the obvious of why'd you join, because it's a cool board to be on, and there's cool people on the board. Yeah, I think that and there's a couple of things. One is our business has to do with travel, right? Like we are selling T and E solutions in some ways to these companies, right? With corporate cards, travel is a big part of it, and things like that. So I just felt that like I wanted to learn more from the business of travel. Mm-hmm. Number two is the guy who, you know, is on the board is this guy, Barry Diller, who invited me to join. And I just think he's really good. And I wanted to learn from him. And there's other people on the board I want to learn from. And it's just such a different business. Um, And I joined the board of Mercado Libre last year and I learned a lot from it. And I felt that with him and this board, I had the opportunity to learn just as much. So I thought that I might give some and uh, it's four times a year i need to go to seattle i'm actually going tonight to seattle for the first one that's tomorrow nice but also i think i can learn a lot and i think being in a public company board also has been teaching me how it feels to be in a public company and i think that's going to be very valuable for the time when we go public yeah totally man and mercado libre is that like the safe way of south america that's like the amazon plus paypal of south america okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay dude i appreciate you I appreciate you coming in and doing this. This was fun. I appreciate your candor. I appreciate that I didn't have to dig it out of you and that you're just so willing to say it and be vulnerable about it. It means a lot. And I think a lot of people are going to learn from it. I wrap all these things the same way. The first and the answer default has been for the last three years, always yes. And it tends to not be necessarily now, but are you hiring? And if you are, are there any key roles that you are hiring for that you want to use this platform to shout out? Yes, we are hiring. We are hiring in the marketing team right now. Okay, awesome. Last one, what does the word grit mean to you? Finding a solution, right? Like don't taking no as an answer. Just like if something's hard, just finding a way around it, hacking your way into it, just figuring it out. Enrique, I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for having me. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.